end of our series on the Mount. Seems a long time since we started it. The end. We've been blessed by it. Today we're going to read the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. In any preaching workshop you go to, the, the teacher, the one who's teaching you how to preach, will always tell you it's important to have a good conclusion. As some of you know, I'm doing, doing a course at the moment, and part of the course is learning how to preach. And hopefully I've learned something. But what I have learned is that a conclusion is important. And it's, it's quite difficult for me, actually, when I do a sermon, to find a good conclusion sometimes. You don't know how to end a sermon. But of course, Jesus never had that trouble, did he? He was an expert preacher, the best of preachers. I mean, people call Spurgeon the prince of preachers. Christ truly was the, the prince of preachers, the prince of preachers. He was a consummate preacher. And he knew exactly how to finish his sermons, his teaching, on the right note to help people go away with something to think about. And I think that's what we read about today. So last week we finished the section up to verse 12 of chapter 7. Steve very helpfully led us. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. When you think about it, it would have been quite possible for Jesus to finish the sermon there and just to, to go on and leave people. But he does see fit to add this section at the end, this conclusion which we read today, which emphasizes and highlights the importance of obeying everything that he said before. Okay? Today we read about strict warning to obey the words of Christ, to take them seriously. We learn today that these words that Jesus preaches are not just good advice. They're not just wisdom teaching. They are wisdom teaching in a way, but they're more than that. These are the very words of life. Extremely serious. We take this um, in the manner in which it was intended. This concerns entry into the kingdom of God. This concerns salvation. It's important. Before we begin, I want to have a little, little aside about the importance of Jesus' words and the significance of Jesus' words. I think we as Christian people quite easily lose the impact of what Jesus is saying. This is the carpenter of Nazareth. This is a man who spent most of his life prior to this in an obscure town, working probably, as far as we understand, in his father's carpentry workshop. And he bursts onto the scene... And he preaches the most extraordinary, extraordinary things. Now, if you were to ask people in the street, who do they think Jesus was? Who do they think Jesus is? A lot of people would say, well, perhaps he was a good human teacher. One of these, a whole kind of range of human teachers that have great wisdom. But that's kind of the best view that people have of Jesus. He was a prophet. He was a good human teacher. But I want to put it to you that no human teacher... No prophet, even the highest of all prophets, ever spoke the way that Jesus spoke. Any man who said these things would be a blasphemer were he not God. Any man who said these things would be completely deluded, like a raving lunatic. You can't say the kind of things that Jesus says unless you have a divinely appointed mission from God. You carry his authority into this world and speak directly, led by the Holy Spirit. 
And even the crowds picked up on this. If you look right at the end of this chapter, I'll go to the end first. Verse 28, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. But then the question remains, if Jesus had said all these things about himself and was deluded or was some kind of deceiver, would he have been raised from the dead? Of course, the answer is he wouldn't have been. Had he committed a single sin, Christ would not have been raised from the dead. He would have gone to his grave as, as a liar and another of a long list of deluded, mad, so-called saviors. Yet the fact he was raised from the dead was God's seal of approval on him. Everything he said was true. And everything he said must be listened to. Cannot be trifled with. So in chapter 7, we see that Jesus gives this warning using various different illustrations. We're going to go through it. I'm sure you're familiar with them, but let's see if we can draw, draw out some conclusions and draw out some thoughts today which will be helpful for us in our Christian lives. So the first section in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 talk about two gates and two roads. What are the two gates that are mentioned here? Can anyone tell me what they are? That's right, the narrow gate, or the straight gate, as it's called sometimes, and the wide gate. And there are two different roads, two different paths, two different ways which lead from these gates, which are? Yeah, which, what does it say here? That's all right, I know you're, you're on the right lines, but... Yeah, so... It's not, not rocket science. We've got a, a narrow gate, and the narrow gate leads to a narrow road. Okay? We've got a, a broad, wide, massive gate, which leads to a wide road. Okay? What else do we learn about the two gates from these verses? Don't be afraid to shout out. Yeah. The narrow gate leads to life. So... As far as we can understand, this life that Jesus speaks of is talking about eternal life. It's talking about the kingdom of God, entry into the kingdom. And the broad road, the wide road, which most people enter, most people pass along, is the road which leads to destruction, which leads to hell, which leads to judgment. Question. When do people enter the broad gate? At what point do they enter it? Birth. Correct, isn't it? None of us choose to be on the broad road. We might, continue to, we might choose to continue on the broad road, but we don't choose to enter it. We don't enter the broad gate by choice. We're born into humanity with a fallen human nature, and we walk with the mass of humanity along the broad road, which leads to destruction, often in complete ignorance of that fact. The narrow gate, I think from scripture, we can be sure the narrow gate is talking about Jesus Christ. And we enter that gate through faith in him, by believing in him, putting our trust in him. How do you know that you've gone through the narrow gate? You know you go through the narrow gate, you've gone through the narrow gate because you're continuing on the narrow path. That's the evidence. If your life reveals that you actually are living in a way which resembles very much the broad mass of humanity on the wide road, then you have to question very seriously, have I ever entered through the narrow gate? 
Because if you are in the narrow way which leads to life, there will be certain evidences that you've entered the narrow gate, one of which is obedience to Christ. This idea of a narrow road, narrow gate, I always envisaged a kind of mountain path winding over the mountains. But actually the word here apparently comes from a verb which means to hem in. So you've got a picture here of a kind of ravine in a rocky outcrop. You've got a very narrow path going through the rocks. And it's not actually easy to depart from that path. You're hemmed in, but it's restrictive. It's difficult. You have to kind of persevere. You can't see the way ahead. That's what it's like to be on the narrow road, isn't it? The road that leads to life. It can feel sometimes very restrictive, very difficult. But it's the way that we, we have to walk if we want to enter the kingdom. A few points we can learn about these two different roads. So the first one. We should not be taken in by an inclusive gospel. And friends, this is very important, isn't it, in the world we live in, which is very pluralistic and which offers many different ways of salvation. You can pick and choose exactly how you want to be saved. And I think in the Christian church there is pressure, and there's always been pressure, but there's more pressure today than ever before to say, well, Jesus Christ is one way of salvation, but he's not the only way. We're going to be very generous and very tolerant and not condemn anybody else. But we read, don't we, Jesus says, the, the way to life is narrow. It's not broad. The broad way leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. And we do people a great disservice, don't we, when we, in our misguided generosity, try and make out that actually the way to life is broad and that somehow the vast mass of people are going to be on that path. We need to graciously stand on the truth, very graciously, lovingly, stand on the truth that Jesus Christ is the only gate. He is the only way of salvation. We know that. Yet there will be times when we're pressured, pressurized to compromise this truth for the sake of an easy life. We're not to be arrogant or offensive. We're to be gentle. But this is a line we will not cross. There is one way, there is one gate, there is one way which leads to life. And we will not budge on that issue. We cannot budge on that issue. We're deceiving people if we do. Friends, that, that narrow gate is open to anyone who believes. Any, any person in the whole world who's got breath in their body can enter through that narrow gate. It's open to every person, every nation and language, every tribe and tongue, but that gate is narrow, and people have to come through through faith in Christ in order to enter life. That's the first point. Second point is this. We as Christians who've, who've found the narrow gate and are walking this narrow path, we should be calling people to enter through the narrow gate. In a sense, the broad road and the narrow path, the narrow road, are almost parallel to each other. We can imagine it like that. So they're not far from each other. They're completely distinct. They don't cross. They don't meet. But they're close by. So we who are walking this narrow path, we, in a sense, we call out to people who are walking this broad road to hell. We say to them, we've, we've found this path which leads to life. we found it. we found grace. we found forgiveness. We found life. Will you come? Will you come through this gate? It's, it's open for you. If you will come, you can come with us and receive life. 
We should have compassion on the lost. There's no sense that Christians should be, you know, I'm all right, Jack, I'm, I'm saved. We need to have deep compassion on the lost. And friends, it, it does trouble me at times that my heart is so cold towards the lost. Because often I'm more concerned about the football or trivial things like that than I am about the lost, the multitudes who are walking that broad path. If we don't tell them Yes, we know that God can save people without us, but we also know that we are the means that God has appointed his church to preach the gospel, the the Great Commission. And if we truly care for people, the best thing we can do for them is to tell them about the narrow gate, faith in Christ. Friends, remember this. We Christians, we don't physically separate ourselves from non-Christians. We who walk the narrow path do not separate ourselves physically from those who are on the broad path. We work amongst them, we live amongst them, our family members, maybe those who are walking the broad path to hell, destruction. We're not to cut ourselves off in a kind of Christian bubble. That would be utterly wrong. We work among them, we serve among, we live among them, and yet we, we have to realise we're utterly different from them. Please don't be fooled in thinking that somehow there's no distinction between the church and the world. There's a great distinction, a huge distinction. We are people of light, by grace, not because we we are better than them. We We are saved by grace, and yet we are children of God and citizens of the kingdom. And people outside are in darkness. We We love them, we call them, we plead for them to come in. And yet we're not the same as them. Our values are different. Our Lord is different. We serve a different master. We walk a different path. The destination we're heading to is different. And that's why the Bible says we should be very careful about making close alliances between Christian people and non-Christians. Now, of course, we know, don't we, 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 we can work alongside non-Christians, but isn't it wrong to try and get into some kind of close alliance, like a relationship, a marriage, or perhaps even some kind of business, close business dealings with somebody who's not a Christian, who doesn't share your faith? We have to be very careful, don't we? People, people are on a different path. And by God's grace, they may yet come onto the path of life. But there is a distinction. We need to be aware of that. And let me say this as well. It could be that there's one person here tonight, or more than one person, who entered through the narrow gate, through faith in Christ. Let me say this. You really don't want to be hanging around, around the gate, waiting, deliberating, pondering whether you should go through the gate or not. I've seen it happen time and time again, where people appear to come quite close to the gate and show interest in the things of Christ. And they, they come to a Bible study and they talk, and they, they, you think, wow, this person, God's doing something here. You get excited and you pray, and then something happens and that seed is plucked away. That person was, seemed to be around the gate, almost hovering, waiting to decide whether they're going to go in or not. Yes, if you make that choice, you need to count the cost and say, is it worth it? Am I up for this? The narrow road. Don't enter it glibly. If you, if you do, you probably haven't entered it at all. You might think you have. But it's important, when you have the opportunity to believe the gospel, when you have the opportunity, don't think in five years' time or in two years' time, I'm going to believe in Christ. It'll be okay then, there'll be plenty of time, there might not be. And even if there is time, who knows, you might be swept along by the crowd of people. 
young people, children, when you hear the gospel, believe in Jesus, trust in him. Don't let the opportunity pass by. It's such a sad thing when people get swept along by the crowd, just forget about Christ and end up harder than they were before. Next point about the narrow path is this. We should not expect biblical Christianity to be popular. Friends, in this land, there have been extraordinary times of mercy and grace where God has poured out his Holy Spirit on communities. The Welsh Revival, the Hebridean Revival, Lowestoft, various places, the Great Awakening of Whitfield and Wesley, which we should be teaching our children about and praying for. God has been merciful to us and many other nations in the world. He's stirred up people and multitudes. Many people have come to the kingdom. And we should pray for this. We should pray for a greater work of God than we see at the moment. But do not be surprised, dear friends, when the majority of people around you are hostile or indifferent to the gospel. It's never been popular. It's never been something that the vast majority of people are going to embrace. That's a sad fact, but it's true, isn't it? I don't think the Bible says anything else. The narrow path seems very hard and unattractive to people, people of the world. It's unattractive. It's difficult. Why would you want to leave the broad road? Most of your friends are there. You can do what you want. There's all kinds of entertainments and diversions on the broad road to keep you there. You probably don't even believe it leads anywhere bad. You think... It's pretty going to end up all right in the end. The broad road seems attractive. Once again, it's sad when people choose that broad road rather than the road which leads to life. Because all they're fixed on is the here and now. They're not focused on the prize that waits at the end, the destination the road leads to. The narrow gate is difficult to get through. If you try to get through a small hole, you know, think of the camel going through the eye of a needle. All that baggage is not going to get through the hole. The camel has to divest itself of all the baggage. And, dear friend, if you're outside that gate, you, you will have to divest yourself, take off all the baggage that stops you going through that gate. Pride, sin, love of darkness, love of your own life, all those things can hinder a person. The good news is that God in his grace comes along, he sees a person in that predicament, he does such a work in them by his Holy Spirit that that person gladly discards all that stuff, repents and comes through the gate and enters life. That's a miracle. We need to pray for that. Let me encourage you that although only a minority of humanity will be saved, I believe, still by God's grace a vast multitude of people will be saved. We read about that in Revelation, don't we? Heaven will not be, not be empty. Heaven will be full of people. Great crowd that nobody can count, praising God. In this life, and particularly in the West, it seems like Christianity is on the wane, and maybe it is. But I believe that my God is building his church. Every day, souls are entering the kingdom. Perhaps a lot of the, the kind of visible church has been stripped away. It's been, been diminished. Nominal Christianity, which is a terrible thing in many ways. Church going. Perhaps that's in decline, but perhaps true Christianity, true faith, true obedience, true love for Christ is still prospering in his hand.
Point number four. Don't be discouraged by the hardship of the narrow way. If you walk the narrow way of Christ, you are going to receive, at times, opposition. You're going to experience opposition and suffering. You're going to have to make sacrifices. Did you expect to to walk the path of Christ and not have to give up anything? Who told you that? Did you think you were going to walk on that path and everything was going to be absolutely fine? You could live just like the world and and have heaven at the end of it thrown in as a bonus. You're not signing up for an easy life. A comfortable, quiet, peaceful life. For too long in this country, in the West, we've, we've, we've had this kind of um, idea, haven't we, that Christianity is comfortable and it's respectable. A time is coming and has now come when we have to make a stand for the gospel. Increasingly so as the darkness deepens. And the cost may well be greater I'm sure many of you already know the cost of being Christian. It comes in small ways and big ways. Losing friendships, derision of people, misunderstandings, in some cases problems at work, having to to put up to get rid of pet sins and things that you really enjoyed and loved which are not compatible with your Christian life. Sacrifices have to be made. Some people preach a gospel, which is no gospel at all, a broad road. You can be worldly, you can have your sin, you can keep it all. Your values and standards can be just like the world. But that's not the way of the cross. We need to be honest with people when we preach the gospel. The test is, when trials come, when you have to make a sacrifice, on the day of temptation, when obedience is costly, Do you accept it as part of counting the cost for the gospel? Or do you just give up and say, nobody told me it was going to be like this. I thought it was all about friends and music and fun. Friends, the Christian life is full of blessings. Christian life is full of joy, community and life. The peace of God, the grace of God, the goodness, the blessings of God. But friends, it's a lonely and difficult road. We can't deceive people, can we, by making out that somehow it's going to be easy. We need to be realistic. Yes, it's going to cost you everything, but it's worth it. Friends, the good news is on that narrow road, Christ is walking that road with us. Christ understands. Did he not walk that road, the narrow path, more than anybody else? We have the hand of God to help us every step of the way. Think back to the Beatitudes. What did Jesus say? Rejoice when men persecute you. Why? Because your name's written in the book of heaven. The book of life. The fact that you're persecuted and reviled for the gospel is evidence that you are on the right path, that you're on the path of life. If you're persecuted for being an obnoxious person, that's different. Not any of you are obnoxious. But if you're persecuted for the sake of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because it's evidence and proof that you are on the narrow path that leads to life. You are resembling the Lord Jesus Christ who also walked that narrow path and experienced such opposition from sinful men and yet did not lose heart. Don't be discouraged by the narrow way. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the church, the local church. That's why you need to be in a church which actually where people know each other and there's a community and accountability. Because if you're 
you're not in that. You're not experiencing that. If you, if you flip between churches or only go there once a year, how can you encourage other Christians to walk this narrow path? And how can you be encouraged when you need it? Enough said about that. Let's go on to the next section, section two, which is verses 15 to 23. A tree and its fruit. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. It's worth asking the question, what are prophets in the church? Now, it's pretty clear in in the Bible we don't have prophets in the manner of Old Testament prophets. We don't have people coming who are predicting what's going to happen and speaking forth the word of God in that sense. Because a prophet is somebody who speaks forth the word of God. But we do have teachers We do have people of influence in the church community, people who are called to preach and teach the word of God and proclaim God's word and set forth his word to the people. And Jesus makes it clear, not just here, but in many places, that false prophets and false teachers will inevitably come into the church of Jesus Christ. They claim to be authorized by him, but they're not. They're not just false Christians, deluded people. These are people who have some kind of ministry, some kind of influence some kind of teaching work in the body of Christ. What do we learn about them? Well, first of all, we learn that they come disguised. Point number one, please. They come disguised, but they're up to no good. What does Jesus say? They come to you in sheep's clothing. Like probably most of you, I assume sheep's clothing was the idea that you've got, if it were possible you've got a wolf who dresses himself up in the fleece of a sheep in order to resemble a sheep he disguises himself I can't really imagine how that would look but that's the picture but I found out through extensive research that sheep's clothing could also refer to the garment a shepherd would wear so a shepherd in the Old Testament or in the New Testament for that matter that time would wear a garment made out of wool in fact, prophets in the Old Testament often used to wear these woolen garments as well. So this could refer to somebody who's got a teaching ministry in the church, who comes in the guise of a prophet or a teacher, who claims to speak God's word, but is actually a deceiver. And you can imagine, can't you, how much damage a wolf would do in a flock of sheep. You'd have carnage, wouldn't you? It'd be a bloodbath. Why does Jesus warn us about false prophets? Why does he mention it here in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the only conclusion I can come to is that because these people are standing near the narrow gate which leads to life, and they are deceiving people and turning people away. Whereas the, the Christian evangelist is standing on the other side of the gate, calling people to come through the gate, these people are standing on the other side saying, don't go through that gate. You don't need to leave that. There's a better way. Come this way. They lead people onto the broad way. Jesus says about the Pharisees, let me quote this somewhere else. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. So these are men who don't enter the kingdom themselves and they prevent other people from entering the kingdom. So much we could say about this in the New Testament. I don't think I need to labour the point, but in Second Peter, Peter talks about this as well. 
But there were also false prophets among the people, says Peter, just as there will be false teachers among you. He didn't say maybe, he said there will be false teachers among you. What will they do? They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. A heresy is something which is, which is completely unbiblical, some piece of doctrine or truth which is completely um, opposed to what God would say about himself. Even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So these people who, these are people who come into the church of God, who look very much like godly men at first, and they bring their destructive heresies and teaching which leads people away from the path which leads to life. They may be very moral, they may be very zealous, they may be very nice people, they may say lots of nice things, and maybe they say some things which are true. Somebody told me, I don't know if this is true or not, I may have mentioned this before, somebody once said to me that the false teaching is like rat poison. Apparently, 98, I haven't actually done an experiment to see if this is true, but 98% of rat poison, if you get a, whatever it is, a pellet or whatever, is actually good for the rat. And 2% of it is poison. And if there was any more poison than that, the rat would not touch it. But because it's, it tastes good and it seems like normal food, the rat wolfs it down and is killed. And it's the same with false teaching in the church. Would you expect it to be full of error? It's, it, a lot of it is true. You speak to Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of what they say is true, we'd agree with it, but it's a sting in the tail. They miss out vital and important truths, which totally negates everything else they say, makes it worthless. A false prophet in the church can do untold damage and not necessarily in a, in a dramatic way. Don't think that a false prophet will come into a church and somehow split the church and cause all kinds of hardship and you know, heartache in the church. They might do. But there might be a church which is, looks very successful and booming and yet is run by false prophets. God doesn't measure success in the way we measure success. We need to be aware, don't we? Point number two, Christians are to watch out for these men. Once again, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. Friends, don't be naive. Don't be so gracious that you tolerate deceivers in the church. Jesus makes it clear that self-righteous, hypocritical judging is absolutely forbidden and has no place in the Christian life. But it's not wrong to exercise godly discernment, especially when it comes to the word of God and doctrine and truth. In fact, somebody once asked Jesus about the last days, and Jesus says, watch out that you are not deceived. Deception is a hallmark of the end times. And Jesus says, many will come in my name and deceive others. Now, of course, we don't want to get hung up about this or paranoid about this. That's not what I want for you. But we should not say this could never happen here in this church. I believe that the devil would love to destroy this church. Why? Because he would love to destroy every church. That's what he does. He destroys families, he destroys lives, he destroys churches with a whole arsenal of different weapons. Not to fear him, we're not to be paranoid, but we do need to be aware, and be vigilant. Paul, when he was giving his goodbye speech to the, to the Ephesian elders, lots of good advice, he, he counseled them. He said, I know savage wolves will come in and not spare the flock. And the elders, the leaders of our churches, have a particular responsibility to protect the church from wolves in sheep's clothing. We need to pray for these men. 
in a sense, we all have that responsibility, but the elders in particular have that responsibility, and we need to pray for them, that they would be vigilant and prayerful and watchful. Point number three, moving on. There is a way to discern false prophets. What does Jesus say? Verse 16, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not by their words, necessarily. Not by the mighty signs they do, but by their fruits. You know, friends, if it it were possible, a wolf could disguise itself as a sheep, but a tree could not disguise its fruit. I mentioned this before when I was teaching in Galatians. A tree cannot help but produce the fruit that is natural for it to bear. An apple tree will, will produce apples. A pear tree will produce pears. That's the natural order of things. A fruit is not immediately obvious, is it? You know, in the spring, you don't necessarily know what fruit a tree is going to bring forth, but by the autumn, you're certainly going to know. You'll see the fruit hanging on the boughs of the tree. And these false prophets of the church, we need to take heed and be aware that it's not what they project about themselves that helps us to judge who they are, but it's what they produce, the fruit of their lives. Someone said you need to look underneath, you're mixing metaphors here a bit, you need to look underneath the fleece closely to see if there's a wolf underneath. Now, once again, I don't want any, we're not going around looking paranoid, like, you know, kind of like the KGB, everyone might be under suspicion in the church. That's not what Jesus is, is trying to say here, I don't think, but we just need to be careful, don't we? Sorry. J.C. Ryle said this, sound doctrine and holy living are the marks of true prophets. Look at the quality of the lives of these people. Now, there have been people in churches who've been, had very dynamic ministries, and many people have been affected, and yet these people have completely fallen into some kind of sin or some kind of error. And it's very dangerous to put somebody on a pedestal and for that person to go into error and carry lots of people with them. Normally, if you look closely enough, you should be able to discern fruit of that person's life through the spirit, but also in what they say, in, in the impact they have in the life of the church. It's not about numbers, it's not about noise, it's about the quality of godliness, gentleness, love, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. These are the kinds of things we should be looking for in these men. Not just a pretense and a facade, but genuine obedience. Point number four about these false prophets they will be judged by Christ. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell, tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You could also include verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember, in my grandmother's house, she used to have apple trees, which we used to climb as children. And um, one day, one of these trees got diseased. Not one day, it happened over time, but the tree, tree became diseased and um, was no good for apples. And it had to be chopped down. And out comes the chainsaw, cut up into firewood and burned. Very severe warning here for those who, these false prophets... They're not producing the kind of fruit that God requires. They will be destroyed. They will be judged. 
So these people in verse 21, they say, say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. When do they say this? Are they saying this on the day of judgment? Well, clearly they are saying this on the day of judgment. But I believe these, these are people who've, who've said this all their lives. They're, they're professing Christians who say, Lord, Lord. They use the name of the Lord. They're not people who just on the day of judgment suddenly turn to, to Jesus and sort of try calling him Lord then. They're people who've called him Lord before that in their lives. These are people that claim that Jesus was their Lord. To call Jesus Lord is something very serious. We can all call him Lord, but the quality of our lives, the obedience, the devotion we have to him exposes and reveals whether he really is Lord or whether it's just a word that we use. Jesus talks about the day of judgment in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, it's clearly the day of judgment. Come back to what I said at the beginning. Jesus, this is the carpenter of Nazareth. He's saying that his words, he'll be the one who is judging on that day. Isn't that a remarkable thing? We're not told here in this, in this section what the, the interaction there is but it's before, before Jesus, before this is said. But these people start saying, Lord, Lord. We're not, we're not told what was asked of them before that. But presumably there's been some kind of interaction between them and the Lord Jesus. Perhaps they're asked a reason why they should enter the kingdom. What do these people point to as a, as a justification, as a reason why they should enter the kingdom? Casting out demons, yeah. Miracles. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus chose these kind of supernatural acts. These are the things they point to. These are the things they cite as reasons. But Lord, we did all these things. We must, must know you. Must be your people. You must be Lord. Friends, many things over the centuries have been done in the name of Christ, which Christ does not own, that Christ does not approve of. And these people have done things which are not sanctioned by Christ, not authorized by Christ, and Christ does not approve of them. We need to be careful, don't we? I don't want to make a, make a, a point here about miracles and, and supernatural gifts in the church, but don't be, be fooled thinking that because someone's doing miracles or even perhaps even really can do supernatural things, it's really from God. Even back to the time of Moses, Pharaoh's sorcerers you know, in the court of Egypt, they were doing all kinds of extraordinary things. And in the New Testament, we read about this, don't we? People doing things. You know, strange fire, doing, doing kind of miracles and supernatural things. It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from Christ. Not from the Holy Spirit. And the, yeah, exactly. We've got this, this damning verdict, haven't we, for these people? I think this is one of the most sobering passages in Scripture. Jesus says, I never knew you. Never knew you. Not that I once knew you and you walked away. I never knew you. You're not my people. You've never been my people. Can you imagine the horror of hearing those words on that day? And these people are cast out of his presence. He says, away from me, you evildoers, you workers of iniquity. We, we don't really hear what happens to them. We know, don't we, that they're sent away to judgment. We're not actually told here what happens to the righteous. But presumably it's the opposite of this. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats, where, where the Lord says, you know, welcome into the kingdom those who have produced the fruit of the kingdom. Wouldn't it be a shame if some, some of us were to stand before God, before Christ, and he says, says to us, why should I let you into the kingdom? And we cite all kinds of things we've done. Oh, but Lord, I was preaching in church. Lord, I was doing this, this, and all these kinds, of, you know. But Lord, I was in church every week. 
Lord, I did all these, all these mighty things. I told you, know, that's not enough. That's not what he's looking for. If there's no true obedience. If we call him Lord, he needs to be the Lord of our lives. We need to obey him. Time moves on. Let's move to the last section, the wise and foolish builders. Verses 24 to 28. Once again, we've got Jesus here saying that his words are absolutely vital. His words are to be obeyed and listened to and taken seriously. And this is really the climax of the whole series of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, this is, this is what it all boils down to. Are you going to listen to my words and obey them? Or are you going to disregard them? So you all know the story. You've got two different houses. So you've got a wise man who builds his house on the rock. You've got a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Let's think about the house on the sand, first of all. So... In Palestine, in Israel, there was plenty of sand all around. And this person decides to build a house and he just builds it any old place. He doesn't consider the risks. He doesn't make any effort. You know, in those days, there would have been flash floods and terrible storms. Actually, I had a dream about a flood last night. I don't know why. Maybe I was thinking about this subconsciously. But in those places, the rain comes down, the ground is baked hard, and it's like a flash flood. And you know... You forget how, how terrifying, how destructive flash floods can be. Recently, I think we watched, we watched some kind of, was it Bear Grill, some kind of survival. We love these survival things. He was showing you how, how a tent pitched on a riverbed, um, when a flash flood comes down, can absolutely wipe away the tent and be destructive and kill people. Just below the sand, there would have been a layer of bedrock, a hard layer of rock, ideal for building top there would have been a baked layer of sand which looked hard and looked suitable for building the foolish man doesn't calculate the risk he doesn't think about the floods and the storms he doesn't make the effort to dig down to the rock beneath he just builds the house any old how anywhere he wants and the house looks sound and the house looks beautiful but we know that the house is doomed to destruction there's another man a wise man who built his house on the rock so the rock's there, he digs down, he lays a foundation, he makes an effort, he makes a wise choice. Two houses. Both houses look the same until one day the inevitable happens, the sky's dark and the clouds come over, storm comes, the rain lashes down. I'm sure you've experienced torrential rain before. One house collapses, absolutely ruined. This bit at the end here which says it fell with a great crash. It means that, you know, terrible was its destruction. Nothing left except a pile of rubble. But the house on the rock stands firm in the storm. Remember once I saw a picture of a town that had been hit by the tsunami that came once and all the buildings were completely flattened but one building in the centre, I think it was a mosque actually, as it happens, built with better materials, had survived Jesus says, the house on the rock is like the wise person who hears and obeys Jesus' word. Hearing's not enough. Obedience is what he's looking for. This person takes seriously Jesus' words. He walks the narrow path of obedience, whatever it costs. This person has a life of inner righteousness. It's not just 
facade for other people, a show, a pretense. He goes home and he loves his God. And even when the eyes of people are not on him, he has that, that walk with God, that relationship with him. It's a verse I love in Titus. I come back to it time and time again. You know, it says that God, God shows for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. That is the heart of a Christian. Your heart's been changed. You should be eager to do what is good. doesn't mean we always do what's good. doesn't mean we don't sin. But it means the pattern of our lives should be, as Christians, to do what is good, to obey Christ because he's Lord of our lives. He's our, our saviour and we love him. This is not talking about box ticking. It's not saying, oh, I've done this, I've obeyed Christ in this. I'll, I'm a, it's not, that's what the Pharisees did. This is talking about the person, the quality of a person's life, so transformed by the Holy Spirit that the greatest pleasure and desire, although we falter, although we struggle, is to obey Christ because he's Lord. That's the true Christian. There's another type of person, perhaps a professing Christian, a foolish person, who hears Christ's words, doesn't obey them, doesn't really care, not serious about the Bible, not really serious about the Christian life, not up for sacrifice, not up for self-denial. They want this effortless Christian life, so-called Christian life, which looks very much like the broad road. Worldliness, ungodliness, perhaps religiosity, perhaps going through the motions, but no real inner heart change. Ticking certain boxes, perhaps, but not really eager to do good. That person will suffer loss. Just to finish up, what does the flood symbolise? We know there's going to be a flood, there's going to be um, rain coming and and a flood rising up. Anya, first point, please. I believe the flood can can be interpreted like this. It could be a day of trial or temptation for a professing Christian. So, if you call yourself a Christian, but you don't build on the right foundation, which is obedience to the word of God, obedience to Christ, not just the, the Gospels, and not just the Sermon on the Mount, but the whole of Scripture. If you don't, don't take it seriously and obey it and want to, to put it into practice, don't expect to stand on the day of testing. Once again, I often talk about this, but I've known so many people over the years who have appeared to be zealous Christians, but when the day of trouble came, some kind of tempting, some kind of testing, some kind of trial, they just fell completely flat, walked away. And that, that will happen if you're not grounded in the word of God. You're not, not just knowing it, but seeking to put it into practice in a daily walk with Christ. For many young people, it's when they go to university for the first time, when they leave home. You know, it's easy to go along with all your friends and everybody's having a good time. When you go to university, when you leave home, when you're away from your fellow Christians, that, that shows, do I really have a house built on the rock or is it just something I built on the sand? But I think in context, more probably it talks about the day of judgment. The flood is that. So point two, please, Anne. Verse 22 again, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? So this is the day of judgement, I believe. This is, this is the flood that symbolised. The two paths re- reach their destination. The person who has built their life in obedience to Christ will be saved. But the person who didn't build their life in obedience to Christ will be judged. The judgement will come suddenly, they won't expect it, and it will be too late to do anything. They'll be, they'll be brought before Christ and have to give an answer. And if that person hasn't been living in a way which is characteristic of a person who truly belongs to the kingdom, 
everything will be taken away, everything will be destroyed. You know, I used to have a grandmother, she's dead now, and I dearly wanted my grandmother to be a Christian. I used to bring her to church once at a blue moon, and she said, she used to say, oh, 50 years ago in a little church somewhere in the east end of London, I became a Christian, my friend and I put our trust in the Lord Jesus. But to be honest, I never saw any evidence whatsoever that she truly understood the gospel. I took her to church and she would hear the most hard-hitting gospel sermon about the Lord Jesus. And I thought, wow, this is the day that, that Nan is going to believe the gospel. We'd drive her home afterwards. She said, oh, that was a nice sermon. Completely washed over her. As far as I could tell. There's, there's a blankness there. I said, Nan, come to church. Come read your Bible. Oh, there was no interest, really, in the things of God. Now, praise the Lord, before she died, I do believe she had a, a conversion experience. She really knew the Lord. She, she got baptized, but so sad to see someone with this blankness. There's no real interest in the gospel, no real interest in obedience, no matter what they say. Friends, let me just encourage you as Christian people, if you are Christians, take God's word seriously. I'm talking to myself as well. I don't take it seriously as I should do. Read it, learn it, obey it. But remember this, I want you to to remember this, we're not saved by keeping all these things and ticking boxes. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But if you are truly walking in faith, you will inevitably want to obey God's word as part of your, your life, your service to him. You cannot live differently. And if you're not living like that, you're not truly interested in that, then you have to question, have you really been saved at all? Have you gone through the narrow gate? Have you believed in Jesus? D.A. Carson says this. Let me finish with a couple of quotes true that men are saved God's grace through faith in Christ it's equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience any other view of grace cheap grace turns it into something unrecognisable cheap is forgiveness church membership without rigorous church discipline discipleship without obedience blessing without persecution joy without righteousness without obedience And Matthew Henry says this, It is not enough to hear Christ's sayings and to understand them. It's not enough to hear them and remember them. It's not enough to hear them and talk about them. It's not enough to hear them and repeat them. It's not enough to, to hear them and admire them. It's not enough to hear them and discuss them. We must hear them and do them.